The following program is an abridged audio version of the streaming video talk show, A Wonderful Chaos. The hosts are Andy Chaliff and Bambos Dimitriou. The format is entirely casual, unscripted conversation. If you'd like to watch a live taping or participate with your comments in real time, subscribe to A Wonderful Chaos on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope, or Twitch. You know, I I say when a person is in a creative act, let's call it, they're more a witness than a director. It's amazing. And that is, you don't know exactly what you're going to write. And you end up, you know, moving your fingers on the keyboard. But then sometimes you see a sentence on your computer that you just put, put there and you say, holy crow, I never knew I thought that. And that to me is the experience of the eternal in the current moment. And there's no higher experience. It's a wonderful chaos. Solo or tandem. We work to find rest and fight to find peace. Both head and the heart. Like a nephew and peace. What are we doing here? You mean listening to this show? Where the more that you learn is the less that you know. Where the wounded are healers and the atheists pray? It's a wonderful chaos and we like it that way. It's a wonderful chaos and we like it that way. It's a wonderful chaos and we like it that way. Yes, Bambo. We have Bob Deutsch. Boy, do we got Bob Deutsch. For the third time running. Third time, Bobby Deutsch joining and, us. And we're going to discuss creativity. 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 What's intuition? Bobby loves talking about intuition. He loves talking about the great minds of today, how they come up with their ideas. So we've done two shows with him. And two hours ago, I called him. I woke him up. Let's let's be honest. It it was where, where is he it now? was an hour ago. He, he's in California, um, and he was sleeping. So I woke him up, and he said, "Hey, I'm uh, I'm going to join you." So uh, so that was that. So he decided to join us today. It's very nice and of him. He also acknowledged that he's a secret watcher. He he never yes. I, I don't. He like never that. comments. He doesn't comment, but he shows up. He's just, he's like one of these. You know, I don't know what you call them. The stalkers on Facebook that. They, they look at your posts, but they never make comments, right? I think there's a term for that. But so- Silent stalkers. I think we should talk for about 20 to 30 minutes before Bob comes on, because when he comes on, we're going to have a hard time getting a word in Android. He's probably the only person that talks more than I do. I like that. We're going to bring him on. Well, first of all, as Andy said, at 7.04, my time this morning, <laughs> the good for nothing maniac calls me up. We need you to fill in. I I, I thought, you know, maybe it's a construction site or something. (laughs) I don't know. And he said, what do you want to talk about? I said, well, I I could, you know, I could talk about anything. Tell me what you want to talk about and I'll show up. This was your idea. It was totally my idea. I closed my eyes and I said, who do I want to talk to today? No, I, I meant the subject. The subject? I'm not sure if that was my topic. Wasn't it you that told me? No, no. Bob told me that he saw a show which they found fantastic where they eavesdropped on Paul McCartney's creative process. And from that show, he was uh, inspired. And he said that he thought it was a great segue into talking about creativity. Yeah. So um, 
How did I get interested in creativity? Uh, well, for many years, I was a consultant to business, mostly marketing. Mm. I was a little frustrated. I could have been wrong, of course, but I myself was frustrated. It's like, uh, well, if you're in marketing and you should be able to just think on your feet. right? Yeah. You don't need everything pre-scripted, planned out, rehearsed. And I particularly don't like rehearsing. Uh, that's not necessarily good. It's just me, right? Yeah. I like what happened this morning. And that's why one of the reasons I said yes is, uh, okay, well, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> you know, I said, you, you just take what's at hand. And the first thing I thought of at 7.04 this morning was um, two days ago, I saw on this uh, streaming channel, Hulu, uh, there's a program, six-part program called McCartney 321. Mm. And it's um, an engineer, Ruben, who worked with McCartney, uh, and McCartney standing in front of a, a mixing board. And they're just having a conversation. And it's like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I mean, it's like really eavesdropping on someone's recollection, at least, hmm. of, of their creative process. And I watched the whole thing in one sitting. And there's many things that came out of it that excited me. But to me, the bottom line on creativity Sir Paul McCartney had a sentence for. And that sentence is, quote, so much was at the spur of the moment. It's like, wow, that's amazing. You know, 3,000 songs at the spur of the moment? Yeah. How do you relate to that statement, Bob? If any, well, I, at the spur of the moment, I mean, uh, what I, the way I relate to it, because the work I've been doing on creativity is um, one, live in or be in feeling. Feeling. Feeling, Andy. Yeah, I know. Right? Trust your unconscious. Hmm. Trust your unconscious. Maybe it's wrong sometimes. Maybe it'll lead you nowhere. But a lot of times, wow. Translate that for me. Okay. So when you say trust your unconscious, I'm going to give you a story that happened to me this morning. Um, I'm working through the third book and the editor sends me back a statement. It says, Andy, there's too much fluff in this chapter. So now I get the book back and I don't know where to start. And then, and then I'm sitting there and then, and I'm starting to write and I'm trying to think and figure it out and it's going nowhere. And then I write something that I don't even know if it's true or not because I, I didn't think it through. I just stated it. And, and then in the statement of it, I started to write and it shocked me how true it was. Although I didn't know that before I started writing and the, and, and the statement was really clear. He said, what is personal responsibility when it comes to a relationship? <coughs> and then, and then I wrote a lot of, I wrote a fluff piece and he said, no, get to the point. And then I wrote, well, what it is, is it's 
interacting through the lens of love. That's personal responsibility. And if you act through the lens of love, you're taking responsibility in an interaction. Now, I stated it without knowing why I knew it was true, but I knew it was true on a very deep unconscious level. And then I just wrote it. I wrote five pages. And what funnily, what I did is I gave examples. I didn't leave it as a fluff. I said, no, this is what life looks like if you respond from not love. And this is what it looks like when you respond from love. So basically, I showed not only from the intuitive feeling, but actually in the concrete reality of what it looks like. So that would be the... Well, and if you think about it, Andy, I mean, even A Wonderful Chaos was born from that space. Of course, Bob has been just saying that to us for ages. And that's why I I see I see he has been enjoying us is because he sees that we don't know what we're doing and we're okay with that. Completely confused. And yeah, it's okay. And it's okay. Well, I think your uh, Andy, your example is a good one. But when you first said it about um, interact out of love. Yeah. My mind said with no intention it just it arrived in my mind right what is personal responsibility in a relationship i would answer just be true to your feelings yeah yeah but but i have a tr- i have a trouble with that because and i'll tell you why cuz bob you're an asshole so that would be me being true to my feelings, but it doesn't create an opportunity for us to connect necessarily. That's why I add the love component. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving an example of how if I followed what you said, it could look like that interaction I just had with you. Yeah. Okay. So that's why I call it responsibility because in responsibility, I see that my intention is always going to be good, even if I'd share what isn't comfortable for me. So I, it's, it's not different than what you said with one caveat is that it takes responsibility that I can't blame you for my feelings. Okay. I have a story for you. Okay. (laughs) It's about chimpanzees. True story. I was studying chimpanzees. So I come upon this area where the chimpanzees are and my reaction immediate reaction was to put my hands over my ears very loud because their vocal the chimpanzee vocalizations go from to you know it escalates very quickly or my that was my word escalate maybe it was not that but that's what what I thought and I over the months I was there, I realized that um, chimpanzees are amazing. They have something like 98 point something percent of our, our genetic code, same thing. And they are in, in some very significant ways like us. Um, but to my way of thinking, because of the loudness, they have one difference between us that makes a big difference. And that is uh, because they don't have language. They have a a vocalization system, but you wouldn't call it a language. Mm. Or at least I wouldn't because I was naive. They have no capacity to say to themselves, no, N-O. That's what you just told me, Andy. Right. You could say 
Bob, you're a jerk, but you you won't say it for for, for some reason, right? I, I I would say if I could be, you said uh, take take taking responsibility would mean saying what you feel, and right. then I said. I would stipulate with love because if I say how I feel, I could just say to you, Bob, you're a jerk. Right. And then, and right. that doesn't create space for a connection. Okay. And my intention would be to create connection. Yeah. yeah. So I was thinking at that moment in the jungle, um, chimpanzees have no way of saying, no, I'm not going to call him a jerk, for example. Okay. Okay. And you could have whatever reason, you know. And, and then I had an idea. I went to study if chimpanzees have parting rituals because every known human culture and chimpanzees are known to have greeting rituals, mm-hmm. but no one studied if chimpanzees had parting rituals. So I studied that because I'm interested in endings to anything. Mm. Okay. And I discovered through, I actually made films and studied it frame by frame and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, And my conclusion was chimpanzees do have a parting ritual, right? But then I thought, why would any organism have a parting ritual unless they had a concept of future? A future in which you're going to be absent from each other. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you have to say goodbye because we're not going to see each other for a while. Right. Yeah. Um, And then I made a leap that most scientists don't like, but I like. Um, I said, if chimpanzees uh, have a concept of future, then they're capable of love. Because to have an idea of a person in the future... The future could be a minute from now or years from now that you're concerned with. Mm -hmm. That's an aspect of personal responsibility to that relationship. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's how I ended up studying chimpanzees. And I wrote an article, Chimpanzees Can't Say No, which has big implications in terms of the difference between homo sapien and chimpanzees. What I meant by saying um, earlier, Hmm. trust your unconscious. I've heard that from a lot of people, very creative people who I've interviewed. You don't know exactly where you're going with anything. Uh, Some of it turns out to be a wash. And maybe somewhere there's a little nugget. And you go for it. Yeah. And sometimes you don't find it and sometimes you do. Right. Yeah, I think that's the misconception is that people think because they see the outcome, they don't see the process of getting there and that it's really throwing spaghetti against a wall, trusting that some of that spaghetti is going to stick as opposed to saying, oh, everything I create is going to be genius. Now, I think this is very true. President, you mean? No, well, well, the idea being like I've noticed, for instance, when I – feel i'll often say to bambos i don't when i'm in the state i feel like i'm channeling so i'm not writing i create conditions around me and then all of a sudden i'm taken over and it just starts to happen and then later 
I look at it and I say, okay, how is this? But some of it is not stuff that I like and other stuff I like. So it's more the doing of it is the, is, is the creativity. You know, I, I say when a person is in a creative act, let's call it, they're more a witness than a director. Yeah. It's moving through them. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I just described. Exactly. I, I don't feel like when I'm in the creative state, I'm creating. I feel like it's created and I'm just observing as it's as it's happening. And you know why that happens? <laughs> uh, I have a story, but I have no idea why, why, why that happens. Yeah, me too. So I have a hunch about this. And I have a hunch from the great comedian and um, cultural commentator, let's call him. George Carlin? George Carlin. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't know you were going to say his name, but he's a legend. Yeah. Now, uh, I never met him, sorry to say. I saw a video of him on YouTube where he was not doing one of his routines. He actually was talking about, in a serious way, how he came up with ideas. Mm. And it's amazing. Amazing. Uh, To me, it's amazing because what he described, um, unbeknownst to him, because he's not a neuroscientist, is he was discussing or describing metaphor. Yeah. So he he says, I'm I'm paraphrasing now, um, I see something or I hear something and I go, ooh, you know, it, it, it stops me, it excites me, or it disgusts yeah. me, or but yeah. I, I have a reaction, right? So, okay, that's my first registration, I think he calls it. Uh, then I might write it down, longhand. Uh, then I'll write it in my computer. That's the third registration, you know. And, and then when I think about it, my mind has already connected those registrations mm. to what's already in my mind made through not the literal correspondence between those things, but the emotional correspondence. Yeah. Mm. Now that's metaphor. The mind let, if you let the mind be, it makes metaphor. I'd love to, I'd love to slow this down and, and talk a little bit about our intros for shows because um, like Bombos and I will, he'll call me sometimes. How about this show idea or that show idea? When I, when the show hits, it's always like, Oh, that's it. Like I, like I feel emotionally that's the, that's the idea that either creates a discomfort or has a, 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 some charge in it where I feel like there's, there's something deeper here that we can dig into. Yeah. Yeah. And it's emotion. And it, it's always emotion. I think I've, I, today we had a call and he said, you know, I'm looking maybe to have someone come on the show. And it was more of a, a, a job to discuss, like, at least that's the way I perceived it, because I didn't go into deep discussion. But and I was like, no, 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 we're not going to have that because there's no there's nothing emotional in it that I can connect to. Um, and then and then and then find an interest to ask questions. Yeah. And so when we'll do the show intros, a lot of times as I describe people who I haven't met before, know very little about, but I've 
seen them. I wrote their name in the computer. I typed out the show intro. So I did similar to what you're saying, the George Carlin process. I've primed my mind already before the show begins with an emotion and a story around it that I now feel comfortable diving into. Yeah. And another interesting thing about that is if you write it directly into your computer, then your fingers are touching the keyboard. Yeah. Right. And, and that could work. Okay. But if, as George Carlin referred to, um, and he didn't do it with that intention, but he referred to before he put it into his computer, he wrote it down longhand. We know this about the brain because of muscle memory and all this kind of stuff. If you're writing a sentence, um, I love Jane versus typing it on a computer, your brain relates to it in a completely different way. Yeah. Because you're already once removed through technology. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I, I, it's the same when I did the last letter to her. I asked people, they said, can I write it, you know, uh, texting? And I said, you know, if you write it, you'll see that in some cases it'll impact you more because you'll feel more connected to the words you're writing. Yeah. So it, was, yeah. it had a very, it often had a more powerful impact that way. Yeah, I, I also experienced keyboards is a little bit detaching from from the core. And yeah. when, when I'm writing, it, it feels like I'm really connected to the heart and there's emotion there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> In relation to Paul McCartney. Okay. Uh, this is my supposition. I could uh-huh. be wrong. When you're working on something that's truly organically generated and meaningful to you mm. you're not just doing it as a job right more than in other cases your mind will work on your behalf mm. that's amazing yeah slow down there a second because because you're saying something i wrote a word down earlier and i use this word all the time and I say, if I focus on the conditions, the emergence will 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 come. The, the emergence will. If the conditions around me aren't there, the emergence doesn't come. And, and what I what I mean by that is, if I'm not at peace with where I am and what I'm doing and feeling in love with yeah. the process, then the struggle comes in and the creativity goes away. Exactly. Exactly. You got it. That's it. You know. Yeah. So I often will try to say, listen, don't focus on an outcome, focus on the conditions. And if the conditions are right, you'll see there's a likelihood that the the emergence occurs. You can't be guaranteed. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. But if the conditions are shit, it's really hard for that creativity to just, uh, you know, show up. And if if you just focus on doing. Also, also no, I I once um, to a certain emotional associations was thinking about Martha Stewart, you know, the TV cook. And, you know, and she's good. And a lot of people love her. I don't like her. I don't, I mean, I don't like other people saying they like her because they advocate responsibility. They say, I'm just going to use her recipe. I'm going to go in the kitchen Slow down. Slow down. We're, I, you've confused both of us because it's very infrequent that we look at one another in confusion. So what does not liking 
Martha Stewart have anything to do with abducting, what abdicating your responsibility? What does that mean? Because people who follow her, if you just follow someone's recipe, okay, there's no feeling involved, personal feeling. It's yeah. just you're reading, being directed, and you listen and you do it. Okay. And the focus is on the outcome. Mm. The focus is on listening to your commander. Yeah. <laughs> and your focus is not on the doer, you. This is really beautiful what you're saying. I, I, I was even thinking, was it yesterday? Yesterday about the act of lovemaking. You can you can read books and look at different sec intimacy positions, right? And you can try to imitate them. But if you don't bring yourself into those positions and um, feel, bring your heart in the intention and make it your own, then you're pretty much being a robot. Exactly. exactly. And it's like, oh, go left. Okay, and I'm going to go right, as opposed to closing your eyes and allowing it to take you and yeah. help and kind of discovering yourself through it. You don't like the idea that basically people are losing their creativity because they're outsourcing it to somebody who got the joy of discovery. Right. So right. she gets all the joy of the discovery. She dribbles out a few recipes and then you copy her and you actually don't get to live whatever that creativity was that she got to live. Yeah. I mean, that's fine if you do it sometimes, but if you only do that yeah, and afraid to just see how things go, if you experiment in your kitchen. Yeah. We would have never had pineapple and ham on a pizza if that didn't happen. Well, that would be a good thing. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Bob, is everyone capable of creativity? Mm. Absolutely. Every personal quality that a, a person needs to be creative is already in them as a person, right? We've uh, kind of said, though, that they have to be in flow and not everyone has the capacity to have that surrender in them. Yeah, so I'll tell you how I think about this. Um, I think about it in terms of temperament. Mm. So temperament is something that comes before experience, that comes before Yeah. Uh, personality. Um, it's when you come out of your mommy's womb and you take your first breath after someone slaps you on the backside, you have a temperament. Mm. And you could see it. I've done this, you know, in graduate school. I was in a medical school. So I would go early to class, to the school, and I would go down to see uh, the newborn room where all the kids are in their little bassinets and they have like 40, 50 newborns and you're standing outside looking through the glass and you could tell by how they move, how they cry, how they moan, how they would do whatever they're doing. They're completely different already. Yeah. Rhythmicity is different. Uh, intensity is different. I think the world can be divided in a lot of ways. People I'm talking about. Um, but one way to divide everybody in terms of temperament is glass half full, glass half empty. That's that's a underlying attitude. Or I would also say 
I kind of use those predispositions. I would say seeking pain or, or avoiding pain or seeking pleasure. Would you see that similarly as a archetype that would layer over what you, uh, uh, half empty, half full? Uh, somewhat. Glass half empty, in my experience, after 30 years of interviewing people, mm-hmm. those people tend to be cynical. And by cynical, I mean they have an expectation that things are going to turn out bad. Mm. That's cynicism. Cynicism is the death of creativity. Yeah. Period. That's that's it. But there are people who who are like th- they think that things are going to be turn out bad, and then they write songs about that, and then they become legendary. Well, that's fine. Then they're in into their process. Okay. I mean, uh, mm. Sir Paul talks about this. Is interesting too. Um, he said he came from a happy home. There was love. There was music. His father was a pianist. People used to come to his house, and they used to have sing-alongs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, he says, this is this is part of me. I'm. I'm basically a happy, optimistic person. Yeah. So I would come into the studio and I would have something worked out, half worked out about a song and it's a love song. And I would play it on my uh, guitar or my piano uh, for John. And John would say, love sucks. <laughs> you know, uh, Because John had a h- hard early life. Yeah. And but but Paul goes on to say, we were lucky. Um, the two of us had different temperaments. He didn't use that word, but different points of view about life. Uh, but when we brought them together, we made something new that each of us didn't bring in ourselves. Yeah, and that was the gift. That was the luck. That's the Chemistry. serendipity. Yeah. Hmm. There was a beautiful TED Talk, which I put on a Wonderful Chaos uh, board today, and I can't remember, but was what this uh, narrator who does a lot of radio shows learned from Dolly Parton. And what he said was he used to narrate all of the shows the same way, which was color, a context at the beginning of the show, and then round up with a lesson. And he said he did that so many times he got bored with it. Mm-hmm. And he said the complexity of life wasn't being addressed because things weren't being agreed upon. And yet he was still trying to find agreeable endings. Yes. And then he said what he did and what Dolly Parton helped him sort of discover was that you could bring in two very, very different elements and allow the question of not knowing be okay with the resolve of hope, of course, because by bringing two people together, there's something new that emerges. And I found that really beautiful. That's a major constituent of, of creativity to me. Number one is sensuality. Feel what you feel. Number two is metaphor. Number three is paradox. Yeah. Bring opposites together, you know, and the great sentence (laughs) I have about that is from Wynton Marsalis. He said, jazz is a combination of the raucousness of Saturday night and the piety of Sunday morning. You need that tension. The juxtaposition. (laughs) Yeah. 
and yeah. you find, and you once you have it, you have to work with it to find something underneath it, under yeah. the hood of it. That's not that's not evident on the surface. Yeah, you know, look at McCartney. I mean, for example, yesterday, the song yesterday, right? All He's, my troubles were so far away, Bob. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, the interesting thing about that song, other than it's being quite an amazing song, is he woke up from sleep and he had that those words and the, and the, the chord progression already in his head. It was mm. just there. So what's that? Who knows? Yeah. You know? But but Paul does say, which is an interesting point, too, he says because of his home, his early childhood home that was always filled with music, he was exposed to a lot of music and a lot of different kinds of music. Mm. And he had that the repertoire of that mem- those memories to always go back to or fall back on or something like that, you know, yeah. or to use or to reject something. Yeah. You know? But we're we're really talking about living and being in a state, constant state, moment to moment Mm. of recognizing what you feel. And I think there's a double layer to feeling in terms of creativity. You have to recognize what you're feeling at the moment and recognizing how you feel about your feeling. Yeah. And when you being, do that, being present. Um, I, I once was thinking maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I was thinking, well, I, I have a number of points about creativity and maybe I could relate them to different phrases or sentences in Beatles music. <laughs> you oh, know? yeah. And I was one. The first thing I thought of was um if you're working on something that's organically authentic and genuine to you that you have a passion about, your mind will work on it by itself. Yeah. Just let your mind be right. Let it be. And if that happens, then ideas could come from anywhere, even through the bathroom window. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it, it really works like that. Yeah, Totally. You know, I was thinking part of the, you know, you mentioned the quote from the Paul McCartney series that you watched. And I don't know if you've stated it yet, but you said things happen in the spur of the moment that the, it is. There's a lot of it that's not thought out. And I and I thought of two instances in music, which when I heard them, then um, it, like it just made me laugh because the the music was so iconic and there was so much meaning given to it that when you heard how it was created you don't you didn't realize the the serendipity nature of it and one of them was the song sweet emotion by aerosmith mm-hmm. and uh, i saw an interview with the lead singer now i can't remember his name but basically there's this steven there's this, tyler yeah steven tyler and there was the 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 song has this like this song that's sort of like a a low a low like it almost sounds like a congo of some sort uh-huh. and he said when they were doing the the song there was just there they they felt like there was something missing 
Like there was something that they needed here and he didn't know what it was. And then he looked down and then there was the coffee. And then he had one of those sugar packets in paper. And the actual song on that song is him shaking the sugar the sugar packet against the microphone with, with jacked up very high. So you're listening to that. That's a fantastic example. I never heard that before. Yeah. And, and it blew my mind because I know that sounds so well. Mm. And to think, oh, wow, that it was that serendipity moment that they captured that you'd think, wow, this must have been well thought out. But actually, it was just letting the creativity take over. Yeah. So two, two quick um, vignettes about that. Uh, one is uh, not in this program, but I've seen other interviews with McCartney. Uh, he was saying... Um, he and John were writing the song, She Loves Me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they used to write songs together. Um, uh, John came to Paul's house because uh, he had a piano there because his father and he has his guitars and everything. And they, they used to write songs together in the bathroom because of the acoustics. <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm. Um, so they wrote that song, She Loves Me, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... Paul's father was home, so they went out to the living room and he said, Dad, what do you think of this? And they played the song. And Paul's father said, uh, I like the song, but why don't you just get rid of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And say, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and happily, they didn't listen to him. Uh, yeah. Uh, and one other thing like that, I, um, I've writ written about this, um, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh-huh. Right? They um, brought in a, someone who they knew, who they respected and liked a lot, and she was a songwriter. So they were playing a song for her. Mm -hmm. And she said, I like the song, but I don't like this constant refrain you have. And the refrain was, Badi Ya. Badiya, Badiya. So one of the uh, musicians on Earth, Wind, and Fire said, "Quote: Never let a lyric uh, get in the way of a groove." <laughs> now that's an amazing sentence to me. It's like never let logic get in the way of emotion. Yeah. Fun fact, Bambos, I was taught how to play the saxophone by someone that was a saxophonist in Earth, Wind & Fire. Really? Well, wow. First lesson, he looked at my saxophone and said, this is so shit, I'm not going to teach you. And he took me right to the music store, and that was my first lesson, was if you're going to play, play on an instrument that you should be playing on. We should say one thing about everything we've been talking about, because we, we're constantly referring to music and musicians. Yes. That's a special domain. To me, I think to everyone, music, I, I say there's only two things in human experience that completely bypass frontal lobe intellectual processing and go directly to emotion. Only mm. two things, love and music. So music is this very special thing. And, of course, the primal basis of music is rhythm. Hmm. Even there's, there's a, a ritual 
in a primitive tribe in New Guinea called Totem Head. Um, and they, uh, they bring the teenagers in a circle and, and they sit around male, female, male, female, male, female. And they're playing some per, uh, percussion instruments like wood banging on wood or something. Mm. Um, and then um, they go around the circle and one couple, let's say, uh, one couple, a man of uh, uh, male and female, have to touch foreheads and rotate while still in contact to the to the beat of the music. Okay, then they go to the next couple, and ne- they do that. And the next couple, and they do that. Then they ask um, privately individuals of, around the circle. Who did you feel you had a comfortable forehead experience with? Mm-hmm. Right. And only if a male and a female both say, oh, I like Jane and Jane says, I like Harry. Right. Do they allow those two to get married? Wow. I mean, rhythm is so um, and it, it's both literal and it's metaphorical. Mm. Right. I mean, look at George, uh, George Harrison. You know, there's something in the way she moves attracts me like no other lover. That's it. He's taking me back to memory land. Yes. I mean, it's memory lane. But the interesting thing about Beatles music is. It will last forever. Very few things last forever. And this podcast. Yeah. Uh, Bob, what do you have to say with, like, I always see art as a person being in their darkest and a person being in their lightest. So I've seen people like who go through a contraction, so they're not in surrender, mm-hmm. but then they'll use, they'll take a paintbrush and all of a sudden they're splattering on a canvas and they put everything out. And normally the painting in my eyes is quite dark. Mm. And what's the question? Well, I don't see them being in surrender. I see them being yeah. in the tension. How do you explain that? Oh, well, uh, well, my first answer is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my second answer is, is a personal answer. Um, and it might just be idiosyncratic to me or some people, but not necessarily all people. Um, I came about explicitly, let's say around eight years ago, to say I'm, I'm going to devote my time to studying what really is creativity. Now, why did I do that? And my answer is I was angry. Mm-hmm. I was angry about so many interactions I had with in business consulting that people were supposedly had creative jobs and they were anti-creative. Yeah. And it it actually maybe inappropriately, (laughs) but made me angry, angry. And I said, the hell with this. I'm going to, I'm going to find out the other way. Now on the other side of that coin, there is a mythology or a belief 
a common belief that um, to be creative, you have to be um, you have to be neurotic or something. You know, I do not think that's true. I think the great creativity breakthroughs come from fun and joy. And the Beatles are a great example. They say even in the worst of times when they were, you know, thinking about breaking up and just arguing about business issues and shit like that. They looked back and they said, you know, the great thing was we were having fun. And half the time we didn't even know what we were doing. You know, even Ringo said recently, when Paul and I are interviewed now, like late 70s, early 80s in age, and we're asked to think back, our happiest times were when, when at the beginning, when we weren't famous, yeah. and we were playing little clubs to 50 people, and we didn't know what the hell we were doing, and it was grand, you know? Yeah. Like people say to me, given I'm not 18 or 38, um, they say, well, Bob, when are you going to retire? I said, well, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to think about that because I never worked. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's what basically I've said, you know, with my wife is that I'll never retire because I'm only doing what I love. So why would I stop doing what I love? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it gives you energy. It doesn't drain you of energy. Yeah. Unless someone calls you at seven o'clock in the morning and wakes you up. Exactly. And <laughs> but it's me. I mean, come on. It's like family now. Right. Well, you know, I mean, uh, if I would have had that call from a lot of people, I would say, no, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. There was another, I'd like to highlight another song, which also has become iconic for me. And it was on a coincidence. And it was Jane's Addiction song, Been Caught Stealing. Say again? Might, a group called Jane's Addiction. Okay, I don't know that. It's a 80s, grungy, hard. And they had a dog. And the dog was in the studio. And when they started playing, the dog would start barking. But the dog would bark in sync, synchronized to a lot of the beats. Oh, sure. So, so, so the, uh, the, the dog bark is in the actual song, and it makes the song so much nicer. And it was interesting because when they asked, you know, how did that came about? It was very, very much the same as a dog started barking. And then they thought, wow, this actually sounds like it could be something. And then they just left it in the song. Mm. Absolutely. That's yeah. it. I mean, I call that um, real life. Yeah. Th there's something we haven't spoken about, actually. And that is since we're talking about musicians, I'm thinking of Jim Morrison. And if you know his life. He took a lot of hallucinogenics, right? Yeah. And a lot of his creativity came from writing poetry in that state. Yeah. And same yeah. with the Beatles. When the Beatles went to India, I mean, 
another thing to be said about creativity and the Beatles is when they were already famous doing what they were doing and making bundles of money, they just changed what they were doing. Yeah, they were trying to follow a recipe. Yeah, yeah. They reinvented themselves over and over and over again. Yeah, and that that was conscious. Yeah. You know, like I think Paul once made mention, uh, not in this program I just saw, but in past interviews I've seen. Uh, they liked the music of the Supremes, but they knew they never wanted to do that because it was a formula. Mm. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, uh, to be creative, truly, you have to be in a constant state of becoming Nothing is done. Nothing is finished. Nothing yeah. is closed. I've and been using a word often on the show that makes Bombos tease me. And the word is? Oh. What is it? Oh. Oh. Or I also say wonder. Oh, you yeah, wonder. Wonder. Like I'll say, like, if I'm not in a state of wonder, then basically I'm looking at things as if I already know what I'm seeing. And then there's nothing new that arises. So that wondrous state is exactly the thing that creates a, a opportunity to re-see something that I think I already know. So actually getting out of your head and taking away the labels and allowing your brain to see the world through the lens of not knowing. Of not knowing, yeah. And it's not, it's not only not knowing, it's just, uh, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's the honest fact is I don't know. Like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm admitting it to myself so that I'm not... Um, I'm not trying to create a reality over and over again, thinking that I know. Yeah. yeah. Like when I write, many things I write, I know what I want to write. I know how to build the argument for it. I know yeah. how to write an interpretation of my own interpretation of what it is. And let's say that that could still be good. Sometimes it's not, but it, it can still be good. But there's a different experience that, Seldom comes, but when it comes, I'm talking about in writing, it's amazing. And that is, you don't know exactly what you're write, what you're going to write. And you end up, you know, moving your fingers on the, de on the keyboard. And um, some of it is top of mind, I would call it. Yeah. But then sometimes you see a sentence on your computer that you just put, put there and you say, holy crow. I never knew I thought that. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. And that to me is the experience of the eternal in the current moment. Beautiful. Yeah. And there's no higher experience. Yeah. There is no higher experience. Yeah, that's the sweetness of having Bola Long and Bambos nearby because a lot of times they'll quote back to me things that I've said and I get the joy of listening to like the things that I didn't even like realize that I had said, like, oh, my God, that's really a re wonderful thing. Mm. Like, you know, the the consequences of an unexamined life will be seen on the deathbed or something. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another thing that Paul brings up, uh, which I find just from the point of view of cognition, very interesting. So he said when when he's, let's say, trying to write some write a song and he'll come to a point in the song well, he doesn't have the words, but he, he says he can't leave it blank. Uh-huh. So he he puts a phrase in there that has no meaning to the song. 
you know. Uh, it it could be I'm making up a, an answer, you know. Yeah. He's writing a love song, and he put and he comes to a point where he doesn't know what to write, but he needs to hold that space. He can't leave it blank because if he leaves it blank, it'll be lost. The whole feeling will be lost of what he's into now. Yeah. So he writes any phrase like, uh, "I like spaghetti and meatballs." Literally, yeah. something random, really late, just to hold the place. Yeah, that is a fascinating thing in terms of cognition. Isn't it? Yeah, the the word I think they use for that is often anchoring. They're anchoring emotion or something in that place so that you can always connect back to that. The anchor That's a good that name for it. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I mean, you could go through the whole history and story of the Beatles and and learn everything you need to know about creativity. Yeah, we've got a, a connoisseur of this who teaches a, a class on the Beatles at the university somewhere in Israel. And if you'd like us to make that contact with you, he's a fanatic about the Beatles and he's taught courses on it for years now. So we'd be happy to make that intro for you. He's, Michael, uh, I love that. I he's, love been on, he's been on the show before as well. Yeah. We've gone over our hour as we always do with you. Really? Thank you for picking up the phone at seven in the morning for me. I'm very grateful that you actually uh, made time for us today to fill the hole that was left. Well, I did, I, I've never experienced doing your shows with you guys as making time for it. I re mm. relate to it as, ooh, this is fun. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's just say you wo you picked up the phone at 7 o'clock. I don't know if there's many people I'd pick up the phone for at 7 o'clock, so thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> Love you, Bob. Bob. Take care. Good to see you. You too. Bye. It's a wonderful chaos. We like it that way.